0: the Jewish views on the Parisian community that lies in the heart of one of the French capital's most Islamic suburbs. How would you feel about rocking your Friday night service away? We talk to the man who can and does. And we give you a preview of next week's Hanukkah in the Square.
1: But first, with a roundup of some of the main Jewish news stories from the past week, I'm Vivian Krieger. An appeals court in Germany has ruled that a 95-year-old former SS medical officer is fit to stand trial but with safeguards in place for his health. He's accused of serving as a medic in an Auschwitz hospital in 1944 and been charged with complicity in the murders of nearly 4,000 people. A new law on organ donation which came into effect in Wales this week has divided opinion in the Jewish community. Adults automatically become donors after their death unless they have specifically opted out. Some Orthodox leaders signed an open letter expressing their unease about the plan. The Board of Deputies didn't say whether it supported the new law but asked that the religious and cultural rights of Jews be respected before organs are taken for transplantation. The South Wales Jewish Representative Council said it was important that at a time of grief families were not put under extra stress. Mike Freer, the MP for Finchley and Golders Green, has visited the new Work Avenue building in Finchley of the Wool Enterprise Hub and praised the team there for helping people find work. The glass-fronted three and a quarter million pound building is expected to open in January. The former head of public affairs at both Tesco and Walmart has been appointed the Jewish Leadership Council's head of external relations. Bernard Hughes, who boasts 25 years' experience in public affairs across various sectors, will take up the role in January. Mr Hughes said he was deeply honoured to begin working with a community that he believes strongly in and has supported continuously. A JLC statement said the appointment is part of a strategy to strengthen the Jewish community's ability to engage on social, political and policy matters. And finally, the Board of Deputies has launched a campaign for the Jewish community to cut its consumption of energy over Hanukkah. Some of the suggestions include having a meatless or car-free Hanukkah and wearing jumpers so the heating can be turned down. The Jewish Views continues now with Phil Dave. Thank you, Viv. Well, welcome to the very first edition
0: of The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Every week, we're going to bring you some of the biggest news stories the best Jewish culture has to offer, and we'll be reaching out to you, our community, as well. Plus, with thanks to our dedicated team, we'll be bringing you opinions, updates from the world of sport, and a preview of the week's Jewish news. So... Let's start off with that. First of all, we're going to have a look inside your copy of the Jewish News for this week as we welcome our very first paper panel. Justin Cohen is the news editor. He joins us as well as Jack Mendel, who's the web editor, and Fran Wolfish, who's features editor.
2: Welcome to you all. Justin, where are we going to start? Hi Phil, well we start on the front page with a special report we have from Paris entitled "Shawl Under Siege, where we profile a particular community in the capital that suffered firebombings, it's been burgled, it's been targeted by rioters, in particular during the Gaza conflict last year. It was very much on the front line. Its members have also been attacked. But this shawl is actually an example of how to continue in the face of terror, in the face of threats. Members of the community are continuing to pray. The shawl continues to operate. And Lisa Sanders provides a special report from that community. And I believe we're going to hear from her later in the show. We are indeed.
0: The synagogue in question is the Shara'i Rahamim synagogue in Garges Legornes. Hopefully I've pronounced that right. I'm sure Lisa will correct me later <laughs> if not. That's the front page. But if we turn inside the paper, what can we expect? This week in the student
3: world, the National Union of Students decided to omit Israel from a list of terror victims. And the Union of Jewish Students called this an insult and they asked them to correct this. The National Union of Students paid tribute to countries such as Nigeria, Lebanon, Turkey, Afghanistan, Saudi Arabia and the Palestinian territories. Another bizarre story was U.S. Rabbi Shmuley Bottegh telling Jewish students that they'd become too cowed by hostility on campus and the Union of Jewish Students again bit back saying that they had an extremely active core of students supporting Israel in the UK.
4: Another interesting story from this week is that Mein Kampf, Adolf Hitler's political manifesto, is actually set to be published again in Germany for the first time since the second world war this has obviously caused quite a bit of controversy jewish groups have quite rightly so questioned why the rantings of a madman i think we can say that should be published again You do have to question, why are we bringing this back out again? But then, you know, having researched this, actually, Mein Kampf is quite freely available in most countries around the world, including the United States. So it's really only Germany where there has been this issue of not publishing Mein Kampf. And I would sort of argue, is it perhaps more dangerous not to publish it? I think it might be quite good in terms of, researching for academics to really sort of look again at Mein Kampf and also for the younger generation to really know how did it all start? Where did it all come from? I think if we continue to shroud Mein Kampf in mystery, it might actually cause more problems and give solutions.
0: But is that question answered? Does that feature in the article as to why Germany have decided to publish this again? Or is it not known? They've just decided that now seems like a good time to republish it.
4: Well, actually, it just comes down to quite a very simple fact. In order to keep it banned, the government actually went with intellectual property law and it's now up 2016 sees 70 years since the death of Adolf Hitler. So it's actually just in terms of that, that's the reason why it's being republished and is free to be republished.
2: Uh, moving on to the next page, page six of the paper, the Munich massacre in the 1972 Olympics is back in the news this week. Uh, the reason for that is that 43 is on from that attack. The widows, two of the widows, Ilana Romano and Anki Spitzer, of the athletes killed at Munich, have opened up for the first time about details of their of their husband's last moments. The reason they're doing this is because they, they're trying still to push for a minute silence for official IOC recognition for the athletes, and they're hoping that by doing this and by, by publishing graphic details in a new film to be released about the attacks and, and the, their campaign since, that they will push the IOC to finally observe a minute silence or a mention within the opening ceremony of the Rio Olympics. On the same subject, I was speaking to Anki Spitzer, who we've got a, a, a positive relationship with, and, and she has been talking about the ceremony that will take place that being confirmed within the Olympic Village in Rio. The IOC have now confirmed that a memorial stone will be brought from Greece to be part of that ceremony. And for the first time, the ceremony will involve members of the IOC, high-profile Olympic athletes, and members of the uh, Munich families will also be invited. Uh, this is very much an upgrade from what happened in London, where for the first time the IOC held a ceremony within the Olympic Village. But this will be much larger. And she's been expressing her, her delight at the fact that's happening. It's still not going to be enough for the families. They still, still are going to press on for this minute silence. But certainly it's a positive development.
3: Also this week... Our foreign editor spoke to Dr. Erfur Merin of the Shaare Zedek Medical Center in Jerusalem, who opens up about the dilemma of treating Arab assailants and Jewish victims of terror. And he spoke quite candidly, saying it's not like we people without emotions. If a terrorist comes in for treatment, I have my own feelings about it, so it's difficult. But we must put emotions aside. We are professionals, and we have to treat everyone as a patient.
0: Yeah, so he's sort of torn between his Hippocratic oath versus his sense of patriotism.
2: One of the most shocking stories of the week, I think, has been another example, yet another example of just how pernicious the, the boycott campaign against Israel has become, to the extent that this week a 13-year-old Israeli girl wrote to Dr. Marsha Levine, who's an expert in horse history, a former lecturer at Cambridge University, now a photographer, to ask about you know her love of horses and, 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 and just to get her views on something she was writing. And Dr. Marsha Levine wrote back saying, I'll answer your question just as soon as there's peace with the Palestinians. And then she went on to dig herself even deeper a hole by talking about how Jews have become the new, new Nazis and Israelis have turned themselves into monsters.
0: So where was she actually quoted as saying this? How do we know that she's made these comments?
2: Was, the letter was actually published, her original letter, oh, about I that she would answer her when there was peace uh, with the Palestinians. Uh, and then the rest of the comments came in subsequent interviews she did. I see. Interesting times. And I think we've got time for one more. So what else have we got? Yeah, we can't end without talking about next week's, one of the biggest events of next week's Hanukkah celebrations. Hanukkah in the square, Trafalgar Square. Uh, Once again, thousands of people, Jewish and non-Jewish, will come together in the square. Jewish News is once again very proud to be media partners. There'll be Boris Johnson once again. The Maccabees will be performing. There'll be 6,000 free donuts handed out through the course of the evening. But I think one of the things that has been uppermost in people's minds this week in the preparation has been the security element. And the fact that, you know, so soon after Paris, people have been thinking, is this safe to be there with such a large crowd in an open area? The CST and the Jewish Leadership Council, one of the organisers, have now written to schools across the community to reassure them, saying that security preparations had already been in the offing before Paris, and had been looked at again in partnership with the police afterwards. And they're saying, you know, that there is no knowledge of any threat to the UK. The UK threat assessment hasn't changed. This is a a real prime example for us to celebrate our Jewishness in public in the way that we have for many years now in Trafalgar Square. And I think it promises to be another fantastic occasion. Well, that is going to be a point that will be echoed later on in this very programme by Simon Johnson
0: from the Jewish Leadership Council. But that is, I'm afraid, where we have to leave it. But my thanks to our first paper panel, Justin Cohen, Jack Mendel and Fran Wolfish. Our top story on the Jewish views this week is based on the front page, as we've just been hearing. Journalist Lisa Sanders has written a fascinating report into Shara'i Rachemin synagogue in Gajer, Lagones Lagones a predominantly Islamic suburb in the French capital and the day-to-day struggles that that community faces. I spoke to Lisa earlier on in the week about her report and I started by asking her exactly how she went about researching such a dangerous area.
5: Well, I've actually been involved with this particular community in this very dodgy suburb of Paris for several years. This was Goes back to about 2011 when we first started to look at making a sort of global TV program about anti Semitism. It quickly became apparent to us when we were researching anti Semitism and various different incidents around the world that here was a community in Paris, a big community, that was different from all the other issues that we were looking at. And people said to us, ah, well, you, you, sh- you should go there. But then again, maybe you shouldn't because it's just too dangerous. No one goes there. No one goes to Sarcelles. They have all kinds of names for the, the, you know, this gangland suburb. Even, even the, the word that we use, suburb, they call it les banlieues and that is has a connotation of being somewhere that is very scary and dangerous and where decent folks don't go.
0: Yes, it's, it's not quite the hamster garden suburb that perhaps we all know and love. Actually, suburb in that sense is actually quite a dangerous place. And my goodness me, looking at your article, which I have to congratulate you on, I really, I had chills down my spine when I was reading this, just because I can't believe that this to some people is an everyday normality. As you were saying that some people have to live in such fear but where does this fear come from who is it that they're actually living in fear of
5: so if you go back a bit to when this community first came they left countries like morocco and tunisia and they came to this people families came to this part of paris and set up their businesses and for many many years this community of immigrants got on well with their neighbors who came from all other places traditionally these suburbs you know but since the second world war mm. immigrants from all over the world came to live in the suburbs of paris and things were were pretty good for many years these were sort of a large confident jewish communities with neighbors from all different places from from asia from africa things started to change in around the 90s the late 90s And you see, you know, from time to time that there have been waves of unrest not connected at all to the the Jewish communities with Algerian immigrants in Paris. It became a flashpoint. This particular suburb with its big Jewish community became somehow a sort of pressure cooker. And people who were very unhappy with their lives, with their socioeconomic state, decided that you have to blame somebody. And the Jewish community ended up being sort of, you know, they already had their schools and their community centers and their, their, their life, their, their, you know, their, their communal lives. They had many, many synagogues and rich learning and restaurants. And so that there was no sense really that the people didn't flee, that the Jews sort of were there because that's where they lived, that's where their families lived, and that's very important. That's a, a specific thing about that that marks the French community as they like to stick together.
0: Looking at some of the wording that you use in the article, saying how they have to tolerate on a day-to-day basis armed guards standing outside synagogues and Jewish schools and things like that, and it actually is security to a level that, thank goodness, here in London, and actually in some really bizarre way, even there in Israel as well, that we don't have to understand or believe. And do people in that community just take it in their stride? Do they see it as normal? Or are they literally living in fear on a daily basis?
5: They are very grateful. They are sad about the situation. And they feel bitter that they are so grateful that this state of heightened emergency has been declared, which therefore offers them unprecedented levels of protection. Now they are entitled because the government has said, you are priority. You were a priority neighborhood. And so, therefore, they brought in the troops. So, yes, this is not the CST. What I have noticed over the time of speaking to the, the people in the community is that whereas in, say, 2011 and 2012, they were still kind of stoical and upbeat – about being there they said you know well this is where we live and they, this is you know our families live here we, we, we bring up our kids here we're not moving
0: there might be a case of we're not moving but that there have been reports certainly according to your report that that many families have fleed to israel now so what has changed between now and then that means that that's the outcome
5: lots of violent attacks. So the attacks just became much, much more severe. And this one in July of 2014, they all say this was the turning point. This this for us made us realize that there's no going back to a sort of idyllic state where everybody can live in peace side by side. Of course, we, we would like that ideally, but we know realistically that this is not going to happen. And anybody who can leave is leaving any and you know, anybody who has the means to go is looking to to leave. They say, you know, this is intolerable. That was very sad for me speaking to them to to hear that sort of note of resignation, and they say, uh, yeah. We know that that we're not popular, that the Islamists are gaining the upper hand here and um, it's it's not viable. So they say, you know, the other Jewish schools, they probably don't know, the community leaders don't know how many families are leaving because some people work in France still. They maintain contact with France and they have moved their family to Israel, say. So they say, well, there's less, there's noticeably fewer children in the Jewish schools and the shuls are not as full, and we sort of feel you know there's maybe not as many customers for the Jewish delis. It's not really it's not really a happy story, really. I mean, we. Um,
0: well, it it just I think from from you retelling the story, just makes it sound even more desperately sad. At the heart of any community, there is always a synagogue. And the synagogue for this particular community is the Sharai Rachamim synagogue, right? And so that synagogue there, obviously, we we I think we're kind of used to synagogues having security around them, even in this country. But that one seems to be under constant attack as well, doesn't it? So I mean, this is not just about security. This is actually about stopping people physically attacking that religious building, and right. it, it just seems unfathomable, doesn't it?
5: When we initially filmed them and it was very striking, the local person that was taking us around said, yeah, you know, okay, so you, you turn up, you go and you, you, you see this, this synagogue in in the morning. And the team could, just couldn't believe it when they saw these immensely high metal gates around the shawl. And that was before things got really, really bad. And they said, good grief, this is a fortress. And looking down on the synagogue. The synagogue is is overlooked by big tower blocks, big sort of 1960s tower blocks, big estates. Those are not safe, happy places to wander about at night. This is the most dangerous suburb, really, that you could choose to to have your your shawl, really. And another thing that happened even back when we initially visited there was that the, I wasn't personally there. So I was just responsible for the crew that was driving along and trying to film some video out of the window of the car. And the, so some people ran along behind the car and through a, a brick through the window, through the back of the car window.
0: I suppose I just have to ask you finally, is there any hope for the future for that particular community or does it really look doomed?
5: It's really hard to say. The French government just last week sent its ministers out to put up a memorial to 22-year-old guy called uh, Johann Cohen, who was murdered in the French supermarket. If you if you remember, indeed, back the Cache
0: market in January.
5: Exactly. So you've got the the government minister, the interior minister, saying. We respect you, we respect your values, we respect your tolerance and your culture, and we're so proud to have you here. They are, uh, you know, alarmed. The French government is now fully aware that they have a problem in their midst, especially because of the the recent attacks, and they are trying to tackle it. For the Jewish community, I think those who have the means to leave have already They've already, they're exploring those options with increasing urgency. So watch this space.
0: Journalist Lisa Sanders speaking to me there about the incredible situation facing the Jewish community of Gages Lagones. Her full article can be read in this week's Jewish News. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. And still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where we welcome different key members of the community each week to share with us their take on some of the stories featuring in the show. Today, Clive is joined by children's author Joe Craig and broadcaster Russ Kane to discuss how appropriate is it to turn a shul service into a rock concert? Well, more on that in just a moment. Plus, our community reporter Diana Toman has been speaking to Simon Johnson from the Jewish Leadership Council ahead of next week's Hanukkah in the Square. But first, as I mentioned just now, how would you feel about rocking away your Friday night shul service? Well, that's exactly what Simon Cooper and his bandmates do with the Friday night rock service. Our entertainment reporter, Kate Fulton, has been speaking to Simon and she started by asking him, what exactly is a Friday night rock service?
6: A Friday night rock service is a service that you would normally go to on a Friday night in a synagogue, except the difference is we have a live seven or eight piece rock band set up with amps, drums, guitars, keyboards, smoke, lights. It's a rock and roll show on a Friday night in a synagogue.
7: Right. Um, So you kind of stand, what, on the bimmer or something?
6: Yeah, the Bimmer is set up as, as, a, as a rock and roll show. OK,
7: so let's just, just wind back a bit. How did this all come about?
6: I didn't used to go to synagogue very much because I found it boring. And when the odd time I did go, I always thought it would be really cool if you could have a band set up and, right. and play heavy rock music. So we had the idea, a covers band, a party band that I play in, did a gig at my synagogue. And at the time, the rabbi was at this party, and he sort of liked all the stuff that we were playing. And I said to him afterwards, how about we do something like this on a service? And he looked at me, and I said, so we can just come in on the service and just play the songs that you sing, but we'll make them sound like the darkness songs or stage square songs or something like that. And he said, yeah, why not? And I thought he was joking. So I went home and recorded a track in my studio. We did Osei Shalom. And he came around and did the vocals. And it was great. Right. And then the whole idea got put on hold because I went and had a liver transplant, as you do. And then we looked at doing the idea again. And then it got held again because I had a double lung transplant. The new rabbi that took over said, right, let's put a date in before you have another transplant we put the date in and we got uh, we got this we got about I got a band together to do this idea then we had another eight or nine songs to work out wow. we'd only done the Chalon. And who's on the band So the band is me my dad plays in it my friend Gemma and my friend Simon my friend Daniel Simon's dad Tony and another Tony the bass player and we also have sometimes we have Rachel who's Daniel's sister playing flute
7: Okay, so someone goes into shul expecting to hear some melodic Di or whatever they sing on a Friday they, night.
6: Yeah, they're going to be really disappointed.
7: Oh, delighted! Let's let's be positive about <laughs>
6: well, this. We we so we did the first one, and yeah. we weren't sure how it well the rabbi. No one was sure how it would go down. We did advertise it really well with posters and and sort of Facebook events. So we sort of tried to make it as clear as possible what was going to happen. But no one really knew. And we thought, well, I didn't know if anyone would turn up apart from our family. I think the first person turned up two hours before to get their seat. And by the time we started, the hall was overflowing um, with about 200 people. That is quite unusual for Friday night service. Well, yeah, normally, because I went to a few Friday night services before because I had to go and listen to the songs. So I got to know them so we could rework them to rock songs and the average i think the average amount of people that were at these were about 12 13 That's people right. on of the age of about 50 upwards which was roughly the, what was going on and we we did this we had 200 people from the ages of about three to about 90. and i think the first person that turned up was about 90 something and <sighs> she was also the last person there at the end and she loved it
7: as long as she could hear it Presumably, well, it was loud enough. Then, I think you enough, could probably hear it in Israel. <laughs> and just, just so that we're sure for for listeners who who don't who don't rise, this is all music, presumably, that's electrified, amplified, which does mean that for some, it's not going to be Shabbat friendly.
6: Yes, for the strictly exactly. Orthodox. So, yeah, so we we do we do these services in progressive, reform, and liberal synagogues. We started at Southgate. We've done about five or six at Southgate now. But we've been to South West Essex, we've been to Wembley, we've been to West London. We've done about 12 different synagogues, most of which have done at least two. West London have booked two or three more for the next two or three years. But it is electrified, amplified rock gig.
7: Which follows the service of the Friday night.
6: Yeah, so we go to the, syn- the synagogue, would would we do the synagogue that books us we would do the service that the synagogue would usually do with their rabbi running it so everything feels normal just when a song would would, would be on instead of a guitar or a piano or whatever there is a live band that, that plays it to to, this, to the style of as i say status quo or the darkness or something like that so it's heavy but the melody lines are all the same, so people can still sing to them, but they just don't, they sound new.
7: Simon, I hear you've released a single, is that the case?
6: Yeah, so a couple of years ago we did a Hanukkah service at Southgate, we did Hanukkah Rocks, and we were looking for some songs to do, we thought we'd do some Hanukkah songs as well as Friday night songs, and one that we picked was a Debbie Friedman song called Light a Candle for Hanukkah. I, again, I sat in my studio trying to come up with something that would be that song, but to our style. Everyone seemed to like it at the service. And so I went home and recorded it again and I sent it to the Debbie Freeman Trust or Foundation and see what they thought of it because I thought it would be really nice to release it as a single because there aren't really many Hanukkah singles or songs. They loved it and they said that we could get permission and the rights to release it.
7: If you want to go into a... Orthodox synagogue, it could be Hanukkah or some other time that you could choose to play for them.
6: So what what we would like to do is, because some of our friends would like to come, can't or won't come because it's on a Friday night. So what we want to do is we want to try and organise a rock service on another night. So we're looking at putting an event on maybe on a Sunday night somewhere. Where we can still run it as a as a as a rock service with the songs, but just not on a Friday, or a Hanukkah service, which obviously we're doing this one, but we want to do some more. That's the point.
7: Sounds excellent. Have you always been a
6: musician? I have. I'm I'm actually a drummer. I'm a professional drummer, but in in this I play guitar, which is my second instrument, which is quite nice because I quite like getting to move around and walk around, which you can't do with the drum kit. So I get to with a guitar.
7: And have you thought of bar mitzvahs and weddings?
6: We had thought about getting out and doing functions as the Friday night rock service. We could do a, We could do a rock bar mitzvah. Now that would be different, wouldn't it? That would be a bar, a bar mitzvah. There must be somebody that wants a rock bar mitzvah.
7: Someone kid who's into rock. Although the parents yeah. have to be into rock, I
6: guess. The parents and yeah, that'd be great. I would have loved a rock bar mitzvah.
7: <laughs> and a and a wedding one too.
6: And a rock wedding and a Because actually band. all of
7: those are not Shabbat specific, well the party bits I should say.
6: No, well the original idea was I said let's do a Saturday morning rock service and it was the rabbi that said let's do a Friday night service and actually I thought about it, Friday night is better because you normally go to a gig in the evening and musicians don't like mornings. So Saturday morning might not be very good. But we, we, we do it as a gig. We start, you know, it starts about half seven, eight o'clock and we have a prayer book that's all made up with the rock service and made up to the service and we've got lights and we've got smoke and we start it as a show, then the rabbi comes in, but, it's like, but, it's, but it is a service.
7: Great. And you're all recuperated and, and better now after your transplants.
6: Yeah, I had a liver transplant when I was 16 and I had a double lung transplant when I was 20-something, three, four years ago, okay. and... That's all good.
7: No wonder you so want to can, celebrate now.
6: So I can breathe, and we do the rock service as often as we can.
7: Good for you. And,
6: and the Hanukkah sing, Hanukkah single was just a bit of fun, really. And we, we, I like to push things to the limit, so I thought it would be great if we could have a Hanukkah single that was a Christmas number one. Okay.
7: And if uh, listeners want to hear some more of you, how do they do that?
6: The best thing to do is go to our website, which is FridayNightRockService.co.uk. And we're also on Facebook, which I think is facebook.com forward slash Friday Night Rock Service.
0: Simon Cooper speaking to Kate Fulton there about the Friday Night Rock Service. If you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email us, jewishviews at Jngroup.com, or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash jewishviews, or on Twitter, we are at jewish views uk coming up simon johnson from jlc gives us a preview of next week's kanaka in the square the schmooze with clive roslin is in just a moment but first it's time for a roundup of this week's jewish sporting news here's andrew sherwood thanks
8: phil we begin last sunday morning's jewish football roundup with a look at the jewish news sponsored rail hendon team they were coming up against catford and bromley who went into the game four games unbeaten Fortunately, they won 3-0. You can also see all the video highlights on our website to watch the goals as they went in. Elsewhere in football, Adam Stoloman scored nine goals in his Masters League match for Chigwell against HMH. That's an astonishing one goal every 10 minutes. Quite a feat. And also in football, the Israeli women's team drew 2-2 with Wales in their latest Euro 2017 qualifier. Switching sports, we also cover boxing this weekend and we preview Tony Milch's next fight at the weekend. It will be his ninth professional fight and he's up against a fellow Brit, Kevin McCauley, for whom this will be his 127th fight. It will therefore be quite an achievement if he can maintain that unbeaten run. And in judo, Israeli-born Alice Schlesinger, who now represents Great Britain, won a medal at the weekend at the Juju Grand Prix in Korea.
9: Thank you, Andrew. And this is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where two guests join me, Clive Roslin, and Adam Bradley to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. And joining us today is children's author Joe Craig and broadcaster Russ Kane. Earlier on, you heard Kate speaking to Simon Cooper of Friday Night Rock Service. The group go round to various shoals and perform the ceremonial tunes with a rock flair. So we thought we'd ask, how appropriate is it to be rocking your
10: Friday night service away? Russ, let's stop with you. It's fantastic. When I was a member of Finchley Progressive Synagogue, every month they would have what they call Shabbat Resold. R-E-S-O-U-L-E-D. You're pulling a face. You're pulling a (laughs) face, Clyde. What a pun. It is a pun. But I have to say that Dean Cohego does the most amazing job. There's a full band there and it's it's inspiring, it's uplifting, it's relaxing, it's melodic, it sounds terrific. Wow. And I love it because you're going through it exactly in the, the same order of the Friday night prayers and all the psalms and everything else, but you're doing it with terrific music. So it makes you feel more religious, yeah. nearer to God. It helps, I will answer it in this way if I may, Prime Minister, that um, <laughs> it helps me to enjoy the reasons that I'm there on a Friday night. I do enjoy it. Even more. I can see both sides of
11: this argument, really. On the one hand, I can see why the Haredi community won't embrace this. (laughs) They certainly won't. They won't. And it's understandable when they put so many restrictions on what their children can hear, can see with TV, with popular culture, they're not going to be very keen on introducing contemporary modern music to their children within the synagogue service because, of course, these children might like this music and they want to go and investigate where the music's from and then they're going to MTV or VH1 or other music channels are available. And I think the influence that they're trying to avoid their children having, something like this is only really going to encourage it. So what about a middle road
12: Jew like you? (laughs) (laughs) I love being a middle road Jew. Middle Lane Jew? I don't know how many lanes are there in the Jew Highway. Oh, there's lots. It's
9: a bit unfair. You're actually um, <laughs> right out on the left, as <laughs> it
12: were, either the hard shoulder or the central reservation. Right, <laughs> uh, we're not sure. I I think anything that gets more life, more vim, more enjoyment into the service is surely a good thing. There's some great tunes there anyway. as Part of many of the different traditions have great singing, great tunes. I've always enjoyed that aspect of all of the Jewish services and traditions and, and celebrations it's one of my favorite aspects of it i think anything that keeps a friday night tune or friday night message in your head through the week is surely a strength if it's if it's lodged in your head because of the tune and you go around singing it yourself that may cause reflection on the message at times when you wouldn't otherwise have kept that thought in your head for seven days rather than just the few hours however long it is on a friday evening
9: adam can you see yourself going into synagogue and when they're singing yigdal or whatever it is Standing there and clapping your hands and time to it?
11: Yeah, I can. I and and to be quite honest, on a on a personal level, I don't really mind what music's being used. I'd be quite happy to have contemporary music or classical music or Hazanuk music. I think what's important here is, as Joe said, it's and actually as Russ alluded to as well, it it's the impact that it has on people is what's important. Originally in Talmudic times, when the Siddur was created, they put music to a lot of the prayers because a lot of the people at the time were illiterate, and easier way to learn something is to learn it by music, and that can only help children learn it. And people who haven't lived a particularly observant or particularly shul-related life, they can go to shul and immediately they can connect with something.
9: Well, maybe reform or progressive rabbis would agree with you, but no no other rabbi would agree with you. And I I think that irks me a bit. Would you say to your rabbi, I'm very irked by the fact that you don't have rock every Friday night. (laughs) Not that they don't
11: necessarily have rock, but that they wouldn't want to use all the tools available to them for people to connect. I all the tools. I
12: yeah. think that's what it's about. That's also, right. bringing it, bringing it up to date, bringing the way that you communicate your message up to yeah. date as well, and having flexibility about how you do that. So, in
9: other words, yeah. you should have women doing doing services as well as men, and you should be doing it in English, and there should be no connection with although Judaism There, is as there we all are certain
11: those kinds of issues are separate from this because there is no, as far as I'm aware, no halakha telling you what type of music you must pray to there. there's for example you look back at King David for example most of the psalms were written by King David his music well you could argue that he was A pop star at the time, almost, because he was a prolific producer of music. Yes, he he was. He was modern at that time.
9: He played a harp, and the temple hadn't been destroyed. But I think I'm right in saying, I could be wrong, but I think I'm right in saying that the reason why you don't have musical instruments in a synagogue on Shabbat is, first of all, people will be working with it Mm. by playing it. And secondly, you're not allowed to have instruments until the temple is restored. They did have
11: musical instruments before the temple was destroyed. They did have musical instruments accompanying the service. And I know that a lot of the rabbis were very unkeen to carry that on because they thought that it was very Hellenistic and they were obviously trying to keep away from that. And of course, as you mentioned, that they it, they were mourning for the temple as well. So they removed music. They actually removed music from everywhere, but then realised that it's actually just certain situations that that would, you know, be respectful to the
12: temple. So I think there is something to be said for maintaining the sort of the holiness of the human voice, the purity and the holiness of the human voice separate from instruments. I'm not in favour at all of a sort of outlawing instruments simply because it you can interpret that as some kind of working of the instrument. I'm, as a musician, I love playing music and it's part of a celebration, it's joyful. But I think there is also something to be said for the music on a Friday night service being something different from what you hear round the clock when you leave the synagogue, YouTube, radio, TV, everything else. And that if someone can be touched by hearing something that's slightly different, the union of voices in harmony, unaccompanied by anything else, that's really special. I've always liked that in all religions, when you go into some of the great churches and when you hear Gregorian chant and there's these great traditions and that's music that, especially a kid, might not hear anywhere else but still has that power, perhaps more power, because you don't hear it anywhere else and it's and it's special.
10: I think you have to think also of what you want to get out of a Friday night service. And I live in the 21st century and for me it's a sense of community, of looking round the room and feeling safe, and happy and pleased to see people that I otherwise would never see on a weekly basis. And also, as Rabbi Rebecca says, that it puts a, an end to the working week, which for all of us is exceptionally stressful. And it's a demarcation line into going into a time of, of, of reflection. And I find that the choir and the music, and it's very, very tastefully done. I think you're running away with the idea that it's sort of, you know, Sid Vicious and Johnny Rotten and <laughs> ripping the place apart. It's not. It's beautifully done and very melodic. So and you, I think it enhances the, for me, it enhances the experience.
9: So you've been, you've actually been to one of these rock I've been many, many, services. many times,
10: many times, yes. They're terrific. Well, tell, tell us exactly how it works then. Well, the service is done with a full choir and a full band. And each of the songs that you would normally sing to a traditional tune, Dean Cahago, who's a, a brilliant person, has started from scratch and reworked them all. So you're still singing exactly the same words and you're still singing in Hebrew. Can you hear each other, though? Absolutely, it's not. You know, Jimi Hendrix hasn't come back to haunt us. <laughs> eventually, you can hear it. You can hear each other beautifully, and the attendance, Clive, the most important thing, the attendance is sensational. Mm. It's absolutely packed, and everybody has a smile on their face. It's a lovely experience. It's the a, a, a joy of music and Judaism all rolled into one. So, outside of Barbara stride' and that's about as near as you're going get. <laughs> can you see the day when an Orthodox synagogue will actually agree to something like this? No.
11: Well, I I'm sure we've all been in in situations for example sheva brachot at a wedding in between the brachot. But a
9: wedding isn't in a synagogue.
11: Well, it can be. Oh, yes, I know it it's can. not in a synagogue yeah. service, but between the sheva brachot they nine and nine but they actually I found a lot of people will be singing EastEnders mm. theme tune, <laughs> Dallas theme tune, Match of the Day, yeah, you know, uh, and it's just to spice it up and the kids enjoy it and they bang their hands on the table and it actually, rather actually, than the same, no, I no, should no, add at this it point that, that lightens in, it up. in
12: 1993, Golden Days, and my Bar Mitzvah, I sang Adon Alum to the tune of I Close My Eyes from Joseph in the Technicolor Dreamcoat yep. and that's the only element of my Bar Mitzvah that anybody remembers and friends of my parents, now come up to me. And they haven't spoken to me for <laughs> however many years it is. 25 years. And they still say, oh, you did that song to you that know, my tune. My
11: children are still being taught a alarm to that tune at school. I was at the school recently for a, um, <laughs> an open day. And I was in with one of my daughters in her class, and she happened to be the tefillah monitor. So she was at the front helping the tefillah, and because I was there, <laughs> because I was there, they asked her if she wanted to choose which tune to sing a don' And bless her, she said the football one. So the whole <laughs> class sang a don' to the tune of Match of the Day. People remember um, it absolutely. I mean, that is the song that you know. A don' is the song that can be sung to any mm, yeah, tune. The and and
12: but it's, also, it is. there is something about l'am coming where it does in the service, that it's towards the end. So it's a release of yes, tension and there's a, it comes at the right point in the service for that kind of tune. Yeah. So it's just a question of, as, as you already said or I said, how tastefully it's done and how the whole service is... But you see, down. you're
9: talking about it being sung, l'am being sung in all these different tunes inside a synagogue without lots of banging noises from guitars and
12: Symbols and drums and whatever else that's quite different from what this suggestion it depends be. if it is banging about or if it's musicians it's expressing their it's, art. No, no,
10: let's 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 <laughs> just look at the word we're looking at the we, we haven't drafted in acdc here what we have done is got very very skilled musicians they're really accomplished i mean this isn't amateur hours they're terrific
12: i think that's important yeah, judaism absolutely. has such a, a wonderful tradition of musicianship, of playing, of composing, of singing. And for that to be infused within the service is fantastic. Contrast that with the church, which sometimes, depending on what sort of church you you go into, will have a band. But quite often, they're terrible musicians. And there are also, over the centuries, the church has outlawed certain musical intervals, the tritone, because it was supposed to be too reminiscent of the devil's three-pointed staff or whatever it was. So there's certain... Mm. Traditionally, in Christian rock music, there are certain intervals they don't play, and it sounds terrible because they're limiting themselves that way. Right. Judaism doesn't have that, and there's a wonderful mm-hmm. tradition of fantastic musicians and writers. There, I... are,
11: there is an issue, and funny that Russ should mention ACDC because it's an electricity <laughs> issue. <laughs> you know, it surely. Yeah, that's another point. Yeah, that's <laughs> never going to get into yeah. many shows because of. Using paperwork. And I can
12: understand that being a more justifiable objection in my eyes than anything to do with it being music or yeah. too loud or anything like that. Yeah.
11: But that does yeah.
9: then throw out the possibility of a cappella music. Absolutely. You know, yeah.
11: It doesn't yeah. need
9: There's
12: nothing
11: wrong with or, out the music. I
9: suppose oh. with reform and liberal synagogues, they do use microphones, so the electricity thing doesn't come in there, certainly in the orthodox yeah. synagogues, isn't it? I
11: don't think we should shy away, though, from some kind of. And when I say modernization I don't mean changing the religion because some people do think that way. But if you look at what's incredibly popular and has been for about 30 years now are Carlebach shuls. Now, Carlebach shuls are Shlomo Karlbach, who wrote many, many beautiful tunes and songs, and he actually wrote music for the synagogue service. And there are shuls in Israel and there are actually shows here, but I remember being in one in Israel, in Jerusalem. And the atmosphere of this place, because it was music and songs that people could really, really get into, rather than the sort of, sometimes it can be a bit droning. Mm-hmm. Uh, but these were really full of passion, and you could see people were really throwing themselves into it. And it was packed, absolutely packed to the rafters. People were at the door, standing against the walls. And as Ross touched upon earlier, I think, is this something that really could help with shul attendances? Because people can connect to something that way. Surely attendances are going to go up.
9: It's interesting you say that, because I was just thinking when you were talking that that's what the born-again Christian religions is going to, don't they? They have huge congregations and the music is very gripping
12: and it, they all sing and they clap and they cheer. Well, the whole the whole Christian music industry, especially in America, is absolutely it's, huge. Yeah. It's massive, and lots of people express their faith through that music, and that music helps them keep their faith. And that's the only way that they really connect with their religion. So, if, and I think Judaism has a better has has the better composers over the centuries, and the better musicians, and that we should be doing it, but better. Really, would you even do it on the Day of Atonement?
9: Silence, mm, appropriate silence. Well... <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't sing it to the
12: tune of Food, Glorious Food on yeah. the Day of Atonement. But. <laughs> or match of the day, possibly. Or match of the day, maybe, no. But It's a question of doing it tastefully and as is appropriate to the occasion. You can't have every Jewish occasion every yeah. being, being yeah. the same and sounding the same. That would, yeah. that would put people off as much as
10: not having it. But. but you know what, Clive? It's interesting. If you turn the coin the other way round, okay, on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, even I know that, the attendance is going to be huge. Because even the most lapsed Jews could say, oh, it's Siomikpur, I better go there, I'm going to get struck down. I mean, you know how this is kind yeah. of how it works, right? But on the regular Fridays, if you, if you go with these, with these services, the attendance is great. And I would say, even if the attendance is very low, and sometimes I've been to FPS and, and it's been like 12 people, perhaps... But with Dean on the guitar and the atmosphere, even with just 12 people, which you might think sounds really sad, it's terrific. It's uplifting. And I used to come out, so i have now, but I used to come out and feel different, changed.
12: Yeah. you know, mm. that's, that's, that's the music has that power. There's, there's an amazing power. It really does.
10: Has. I mean,
11: I'm always very very suspicious of people who said, oh, I don't really like music. There's something wrong there, surely. Whoever says that? I've heard people, that and comedy. anybody who doesn't like <laughs> music or <laughs> comedy?
10: Don't like comedy. And I feel
11: that music just has that connection with the soul. And if we're going to sure to connect our soul, then why not magnify that yeah, with the music? Well,
9: that's a very good point, and I think it's a good place in which to end this discussion. So my thanks to our guests, children's author Joe Craig and broadcaster Russ Kane. Next week sees one of the community's biggest events, Hanukkah in the Square, 2015. It's expected both Jews and non-Jews will turn out in their thousands to take part in the festivities, and our community reporter, Diana Toman, has been speaking to Simon Johnson from the Jewish Leadership Council to find out what we can expect. She started by asking him to remind us what Hanukkah in the Square is all
13: about. Hanukkah in the Square is a joyful, energetic, musical and lively way to celebrate the festival of Hanukkah. There is a 30-foot menorah in the heart of Trafalgar Square, and on Thursday evening, the fifth night of Hanukkah, we'll be joined by the Mayor of London, by the Chief Rabbi, by musicians, by the Maccabees, and we'll be celebrating the festival of Hanukkah right in the heart of central London. It's a fantastic event. It's my favourite event of the year. We have donuts. there's food, there's celebrations, and it's a wonderful way for us to be able to celebrate this most visible and most joyful of festivals right in the heart of central London.
14: And will all the other menorah right round London be being lit at the same time?
13: that's, That's right. This is a great initiative that Chabad started a number of years ago. The JLC has been working with chabad and the mayor of london and the london jewish forum since about 2010 on this big event so this will be the biggest of the menorah lightings but there are menorah lightings in jewish communities all around the country as well ours this year is on the fifth night and it's something i'm really looking forward to that i can imagine how many people do you imagine will actually turn up In previous years, we've had anything between 5,000 and 6,000 people joining us. It's the type of event you can just drop into. The Square is open, it's from 5.30 till 7.30. The actual lighting itself with the speech by the Mayor of London is at 6 o'clock. This year, we've brought over the Maccabees, who are extremely popular in this country and extremely popular at this time of the year. And so we're hopeful that we'll get the same numbers, maybe even more, because this is a great event for people to come in to, if they're in central London, to drop into Trafalgar Square and celebrate our culture and our heritage together. It's obviously a tremendous achievement. Do you think
14: you'll be able to carry on after the mayoral elections with a new mayor?
13: Well there's no reason why not. Mayor Boris Johnson has been extremely supportive and I know that both the main mayoral candidates have also indicated that they'd like to support it as well. So the only problem we might have is the timing of Hanukkah. Next year it coincides exactly with uh, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. We may not be able to get up to quite the same level as we do this year but this has been a great event and many uh, politicians from the GLA and from across the uh, political spectrum come and join us. So I see no reason why this event shouldn't continue to grow.
14: So next year the menorah might be
13: competing with the Christmas tree from Norway. Well, the Christmas tree is going to be there this year as well. Oh, and true. It's, uh, yes, yes, it's in the square. So right. it's actually, it, it's a great way to celebrate the diversity and the cultural and diversity the of London. coexistence of religions, That's right, exactly. because we'll be celebrating Hanukkah with a 30-foot menorah. There'll be a Christmas tree there. I think that the mayor of London and the GLA also has their crib over the other side by Nelson's column. So it's a real opportunity for us to show that as a Jewish community, we live in the This great city, along with all the other faiths, and we're able to celebrate our faith, our culture, our heritage and uh, our enjoyment of this great festival.
14: Indeed. Now, I'm sorry to rain on your parade, but what are you doing about security? Well, I mean, people are going to be nervous, particularly this year.
13: Of course, we understand that. I mean, Hanukkah in the Square is one of the biggest events of the year within the Jewish community. It's therefore one of the biggest security operations. We work very closely with our partners at the GLA, at the mayor's office, the CST and the police. Now, we were already discussing the security arrangements well before the tragic incidents in Paris. After those incidents, those security operations have been reassessed, and so working very closely with our partners, there's going to be completely appropriate security to make sure that this event can proceed in the way that we all want it to do and What I would say to people is if we do anything that that says, "Oh, you know what I'm not going to bother coming this year because i'm nervous, I think that sends completely the wrong message that says to those who wish to attack our way of life that in some way they have been successful. I think this year we've been determined to make Hanukkah in the Square bigger and bolder than in previous years because we are proud of the role that we can play as a Jewish community in British society. So there will be an adequate level of security. I'm very happy to come, I'm very happy to recommend to people that they should show that this is something that they should support. Excellent.
14: Have you been involved with the whole
13: Hanukkah in the square thing since 2010 The JLC has been working with Chabad since 2010 I personally only joined the JLC in 2013 so this will be my third event and I always play the role jointly with Rabbi Bensi Sudak of Chabad Lubavitch we are the joint compares on the evening it's great fun and I think with our band Neshama we have performances from Akiva School and j we have the Maccabees I think this year it's going to be a tremendous party and I really would Hope that if you're in central London, people can come along and join in the fun.
0: Simon Johnson speaking to community reporter Diana Toman. There, just time now for our thought for the week. Today, it comes from Rabbi Harvey Bolowski from Golders Green United Synagogue.
15: Hanukkah is going to be this week, and it's a time to think about the meaning of the menorah, the symbol that is so familiar to everyone and was adopted as, as the symbol of the state of Israel. The usual understanding of the menorah is quite straightforward. In the time of the war against the Greeks in the Hasmonean era during the Second Temple period, the temple was defiled, a jar of oil was found that was undefiled, and it lit the menorah for eight days rather than one. And we celebrate that miracle by lighting the menorah every night during Hanukkah. But the truth is it's actually slightly more sophisticated than that, although perhaps this is an unfamiliar way of looking at it. Chanukah is not really about the menorah at all, not even about the miracle of oil which undoubtedly was impressive, powerful and quite memorable. Chanukah is actually about a very subtle ideological battle that was waged at the time. It was about the value of spirituality as experience within the world. Some people would say spirituality is separate. If you want to be spiritual, You need to live on a mountaintop and distance yourself from the physical world. Some people will say you should just be a hedonist, enjoy the physical world because there's no spiritual world or even if there is one, it's miles away. Judaism offers an alternative where it's possible to combine spiritual achievements and enjoy the best of the world, its music, its art, its literature, and include the two together. The menorah symbolises that idea. When the battle was won, The menorah was lit not because of the miracle, but because it symbolises what Judaism really stands for. Light of different branches coming together in the service of God.
0: Thank you to Rabbi Harvey Balofsky from Golders Green United Synagogue with our Thought for the Week there. And that's all The Jewish Views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Lisa Sanders, Simon Cooper, Simon Johnson, Joe Craig and Russ Kane, who were on The Schmooze, and, of course, you at home for listening. Thanks also must go to our team, including our producers, Adam Bradley and Sue Greenberg. And don't forget you can always download the most recent editions of The Jewish Views by visiting the Jewish News website. That address is coming up, and you can also search for us in iTunes. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the Studios of Jewish Care in London. Don't forget, you can pick up your copy of The Jewish News every Thursday at one of more than 300 outlets across London. Or, of course, you could always read the e-version of the newspaper at jewishnews.co.uk. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us same time next week here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.